0: Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is your Sunday Reset. Some unveilings are more momentous than others. The opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture on the National Mall was one of those moments.
1: This was a great achievement. I tell you. I feel like singing the song, a Haley Jackson song at the March on Washington over 50 years ago, how we got over, how we got over. There was some who said it couldn't happen, who said you can't do it, but we did it, we did it.
0: That was civil rights leader Representative John Lewis of Georgia speaking at the opening ceremony in 2016. Building the historic museum was no simple feat, but founding director Lonnie Bunch III and his team led the charge to completion.
1: Did we really believe we could create a museum that had been in the planning for more than a century? How could we not believe when we could dip into the
0: reservoir that is African American history? In May of this year, Bunch was elected the 14th Secretary of the Smithsonian. He's the first African-American person and the first historian to hold that position. We spoke to Lonnie Bunch about his new memoir, A Fool's Errand, creating the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in the Age of Bush, Obama, and Trump. And we started out by asking him how he feels now that he has some distance from the completion of the project.
1: Well, what's been so powerful is that the project, the museum, is still the pilgrimage site, that um, it's still hard to get in. In fact, everybody who ever knew me called for tickets, right? Um, And I think that what I've realized is America desperately needed an opportunity to talk about its tortured racial past, but also to find the kind of healing that comes from the resiliencies of the story. So I have been really moved how the public still thinks it's the place you have to go as part of the National Mall.
0: And yet the title of your book, of your memoir, A Fool's Errand, when I read that title, I said, I wonder wonder what he means (laughs) by that. So tell us, what did you mean?
1: When I was an undergraduate, I read a novel a bad Victorian novel called A Fool's Errand. And it was a story about an abolitionist who went to the South after the Civil War to help heal the racial divide and to work with the African-American community. Well, he ran afoul of the racism and the violence and was chased back to the North. And he said his desire to unite a country was a fool's errand. But you know, even if you fail, a fool's errand can make a country better. And so as I was thinking about this process where people weren't sure we could pull this off and you know, people said, are you foolish to risk this, that title kept coming back to me. And I thought even if we didn't complete it, it would help make the country better. And being able to complete it really meant that we were able to, able to overcome even the most difficult of things.
0: Mm-hmm. And you did complete it. And And for people who haven't visited, just... Help us understand the breadth that you cover in the museum.
1: Well, what we wanted to do was to take a museum that would, first of all, take you historically from the slave trade in the 15th century to today. So one part of it just gives you that amazing history. that takes you through slavery, through segregation, through the civil rights movement. But then we also wanted you to feel the kind of joy that was in this community. So we talk a lot about the role of film, television, culture, music, as well as giving you a sense of the history of African-Americans in the military. And one of the things that was so important was to realize there wasn't a single African-American experience. So we really tell stories through the lens of Chicago or Birmingham um, so that people get a sense that this is an amazingly complicated community. But maybe the most important thing we do is all of those stories are done in a way that said, this is not a separate story about the black experience. It is really using the African-American experience as a lens understand what it means to be an American so it really is framed as a story for us all
0: Early in your memoir, you tell this story um, about an early mission to exhibit the experience of slavery in the 19th century by focusing on on one plantation. And, And you land on a plantation outside of Georgetown, South Carolina, and you meet a man named Princey Jenkins. And he gave you a really specific charge for your leadership. He said to remember not just what we want to remember, but what we have to remember. How has that shaped the way you've approached your work?
1: It's changed everything that I've done from the time I met Princey Jenkins. You've got to realize I'm on this plant, this rice plantation surrounded by swamps. Um, and this man had lived on the plantation his whole life, and he really sort of struggled, you know, why do you want to tell this story, who are you? And when he told me, you've got to make sure that you give the people not what they want but what they need. And to me, that was the challenge of the African-American experience, to help people tell the story in a way that would give you the heroes and the resiliency that you want but it would also give you the challenges and the torture and the pain that you need to remember to find true understanding of the American past.
0: As you embarked on on this journey, and this is one of the tensions in the book, what people thought they needed from this museum really, really differed. Um, You're approached by a woman on the street who said, don't put slavery in the museum. How did you balance these competing concerns, um, the hurts that people wanted to, you know, not really engage with?
1: I thought it was important, and the word I used was tension. I wanted to find the right tension between moments that would make you cry and moments that would inspire you and find the resiliency, because in a way, isn't that the African-American experience? Um, and so what we did literally was I kept, track. I actually looked through different exhibitions and said, "Okay, how much of this is really difficult? How much of this is inspirational? How much of this tells the broader American story? So even though curators had freedom to create, I wanted to make sure there were certain things we did. And it was really tough because you had people who said, this has to be the Holocaust Museum, what they did to us. Um, You had other people who said, this is an opportunity to engage new generations and free them from the burdens of slavery. So what we did is we basically said, first of all, let's make sure we knew what the public wanted. Then we married that with the best scholarship. And then I said, okay, now let's figure out what we're going to do. And so I think we hit the right mixture because I really felt that you shouldn't go through this museum without understanding the pain people experience, but also I want you to experience the optimism that was in that community. I mean, there was something powerful about helping people understand that African Americans always believed in a country that didn't believe in them. Um, And that belief is part of what transformed the country and began to help it live up to its stated ideals.
0: So there's the vision. And then there are the politics. And you bumped up against the politics quite a bit, whether it was getting support, financial support for the museum or simply where the museum would exist. Uh, talk about negotiating p- politics and, and where that intersects with trying to create a, a truthful um, version of history.
1: Well, it's interesting. Early in the process, some scholar asked me and they said, well, Lonnie, you can't really tell the truth. You work for the federal government. It's mm-hmm. a Smithsonian." And my notion was, borrowing on what John O. Franklin, the great historian, used to always say to me, that you've got to tell the unvarnished truth. But I realized it's not enough to have a vision, not enough to say this is what we want to accomplish, but you have to realize that in Washington you have to be political. Um, and so what it meant was recognizing what I learned from my years at the Smithsonian— I learned that it was important to build allies in Congress on both sides of the aisle. And a lot of that began, clearly, from my time in Chicago. Not only did I know the Democrats that came out of Chicago, including somebody that became a senator and then a president, um, but I knew— The Republicans from the North Shore, I knew people from Southern Illinois, and that gave me a sense that I wasn't just somebody who was supportive of the Democrats, but also had Republican support. And I tried to build that up so that we would have a significant number of members who would basically say, look- I may not agree with everything they're doing, but they're trying to do it in the right way because basically what you want is enough congressional support that you can do the work you want to do.
0: But was there a time when that tension really chafed? You're trying to hold the line as a historian and tell the truth, but you also have the reality of politics searing you in the face.
1: Well, what I did that was really important was getting the staff at all times of talking on the Hill with the media to say, You can't tell the story if you don't want controversy. You can't tell the story if you don't illuminate all the dark corners of the American experience. If you don't want to do it, don't build a museum. But if you're going to build a museum, we are going to be shaped by the unvarnished truth.
0: You're listening to Reset. We're speaking with Lonnie Bunch III, founding director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, and current secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. His new memoir is called A Fool's Errand. You mentioned Chicago. Uh, You have roots here in the city. And you talk about this decision to leave your work in Chicago, go to D.C., And in the book, you say your work in Chicago, quote, nurtured your soul. But being a part of this new project nurtured the souls of your ancestors. Unpack that for us.
1: I loved being in Chicago. Um, I also understood symbolically what it meant to be an African-American leading one of the oldest museums in the city. Uh, I loved the way Chicago was the only place I ever lived where the cultural, political, and corporate community actually interacted with each other. Um, and I was really proud of being the president of Chicago Historic Society. And I never, ever talked about ancestors in my career. And all of a sudden when this job came up and people reached out to me, suddenly it was my ancestors. It was about saying if you stayed in Chicago, it would be for you. But if you took the chance of going back and starting a startup, um, it would really be for all of our ancestors who we don't even know who they are, whose stories have been lost. And then it became really one of my guiding things to say success is if I could make my ancestors smile.
0: Did you have a moment when you knew you'd been successful in making them smile?
1: You know, I did. I I think that I wasn't sure there would be these moments where suddenly ancestors would pop up, right? Um, And for me, one of them was when I was in search of the slave ship. And I went around the world looking for a slave ship that we could bring pieces of. And when we found the Sal Jose, which had left Lisbon and picked up 512 people from the Makua tribe in Mozambique and sank off the coast of Cape Town, once we found it and I went back to Mozambique and I talked to the chief. And the chief gave me this amazing vessel, crap with cowrie shells. And he said, this is a gift. And I opened it and it was dirt, soil. And I didn't know what it was. And he said, would you please do mine and your ancestors a favor? Take this soil, sprinkle it on the side of the wreck, so for the first time since 1794, my people can sleep in our own land. That's when I knew we were doing the right thing.
0: That's that's an enormous um, responsibility to be placed in your hands. and And I wonder how you manage this responsibility of being the holder of of history and now not just for the African-American History Museum, but also for the entire Smithsonian Institution.
1: In some ways, my career has been lucky. I've realized that part of my job is to hold people's culture in my hands. And I used to always say to staff, the key is if you want to work on this project, remember you have to treat that culture with respect, like you're holding your own child in your hand. And so I think I was prepared for that And I knew, as I said to my staff, do what we think is right, because you're going to get criticized anyway. But do what you think is right, what the scholarship tells us, and then we'll be okay.
0: So you left Chicago, moved to D.C., took on this fool's errand, as you call it. But the museum brought some of your own personal family history back to you. Can you tell us about that?
1: You know, as a historian, it's almost like, you know, the cobbler's children have no shoes, right? I never really did much of my own history. Um, But as I was doing this, I stumbled upon actual things about my own family and found that, you know, one of the sort of enslaved people who was the sort of first bunch that we could find um, had, you know, been held a slave and had died shortly after Reconstruction. And I realized that when I was doing the exhibitions that it was no longer the objective historian. Suddenly when I saw a slave cabinet we collected, I saw Candace Bunch trying to imagine what this relative's life was like. And so it gave me a sense that this was more than a museum. This was an opportunity for people to remember, um, to be made whole. Um, to find themselves. And so it became both a professional job, but also became a personal calling.
0: There's a a deeply personal moment in the book when you, you hear from a woman who holds a piece of your family's history. Can you share that with us?
1: So it was about six to nine months after we opened. And I would get a lot of calls and people would say they knew me or they knew my father. And it was very nice. And one day I received an email from a woman who said, my godmother um, is 90 years old and knew your family. And for some reason, normally I'm just very polite and thank you. But for some reason, I felt the need to call. So I called this woman. She was clearly um, you know, struggling with her memory and everything. And it turned out she lived about 40 miles from the district – And I think I called her on a Thursday and I said, you know what? I'll come over and visit you on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. My wife and I drove over and we got there. Very nice woman um, whose memory was in and out. You know, at first she's not sure. And then all of a sudden she says that her mother was best friends with my grandmother. Um, Now, my grandmother died two weeks before I turned five years old. So I have strong memories but limited memories. And I of her as an old woman. And so I said, thank you. Tell me the story. And apparently her mother and my grandmother were best friends. And when my grandmother left North Carolina to marry my grandfather to come to New Jersey, um, they took pictures. And I said, oh, that's amazing. And then this woman reached into the drawer and pulled out a picture of my grandmother from 1910. And to look at this woman who, in my memory, was old and bent— And to see a woman really in her prime um, was an amazing gift to me. And what really did it was, so I'm taking my camera out to take a picture. And she said, oh, no, 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 you take the original. And then she pulled out photographs apparently that her mother took when she visited my grandmother in the 1950s. And there I am as a four-year-old kid in my backyard. I've never seen those kind of images. And to me, that made everything worthwhile. To suddenly have this image of my grandmother, to see her in a different light, to think about her in ways that a five-year-old kid could never imagine was an amazing gift that would have never happened if we hadn't built the museum.
0: Now, the creation of the museum didn't happen in a vacuum. There's been... Tremendous turmoil in in the nation about race. And it it found its way to the museum. Uh, There was an incident in 2017 where a noose showed up in an exhibit on the KKK. How are you thinking about the museum's role in, in this larger conversation we're having about race and racism right now?
1: It was really a fascinating moment, an ugly moment. But when the news came and we found it, um, while I was angry about it, it didn't surprise me. What was surprising was that my younger staff, um, kids in their 20s and 30s, were stunned that that would still happen. Um, Couldn't believe it. And I said, think about it. You're in a history museum and you were stunned. So what do you think the American public is? And I realized that Part of our job is we can't solve every problem, but part of our job ought to be to be a place where we contextualize these issues, whether it's public programs that talk about Charlottesville or or racism, because our goal ought to be to contribute to giving Americans tools to live their lives, to have reasoned debate with knowledge. And so... I really do think that if the museum is just about yesterday, then it fails. But if it helps us think about yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then it becomes a place that is valued and, co- and contributes in a way to making a country better.
0: After writing the memoir, um, remembering some of the struggles you had to go through to create the African American History Museum— I wonder where you're finding hope these days, even as we see an uptick in hate crimes and hate speech.
1: I find hope in history. I find hope in that we had ancestors who were enslaved, um, who ultimately didn't give up. We had people who kept fighting in a way that they really didn't even know what the end game was but they knew they would change a country. And there's no doubt in my mind. Uh, unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember Jim Crow segregation. And I remember, as a kid, being going places in the South and seeing these signs. And so for me, there's no doubt that the country has changed. There's no doubt that the racism is strong and virulent, and that, in essence, to combat racism, one has to be ever vigilant.
0: That's Lonnie Bunch III, founding director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, and current secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. His new memoir is A Fool's Errand, creating the National Museum of African American History and Culture in the Age of Bush, Obama, and Trump. Mr. Bunch, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. It's my great treat.
1: I can't wait to come back.
0: And that's it for your Sunday Reset. Keep in touch with us via Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset. I'm at Jay White Pub Radio. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.